Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films and television shows. The program features almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also features certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction, and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events, nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415 or visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writer's program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, okay, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a podcast situation. This is getting sort of hard to define. Uh, My name is Brad Listy. I'm your host. I'm sitting here. I'm talking to you. Can you hear me? Uh, I I guess I'll start with what's on my mind. I was just reading about this. It's a guy named Ray Dolan. Uh, Not sure if you've heard of him. This is a news story. It is uh, publishing related, at least uh, somewhat. And it seems for me uh, to encapsulate something vital about where we are right now uh, as a species, as an industry, and so on. And, uh, you know, come to think of it, I may actually wind up writing about this. I sort of feel the urge, I think, to write about this in some capacity. Uh, so Ray Dolan, uh, his name is Ray Dolan, not Ray Dolan. Uh, his name is Ray Dolan. For those of you who don't know, he's from West Virginia originally, and, uh, he was hitchhiking around America, supposedly researching a book on American kindness, uh, American 
kindness, kindness, uh, the kindness of American people, the kindness of strangers in America. Uh, and so last week while in Montana, he was uh, shot in the upper arm while standing on the side of the road hitchhiking. It was, uh, you know, thank goodness it was a non-fatal wound. Uh, paramedics came. Uh, Mr. Dolan then informed authorities that he had nearly been killed by a passing motorist who stopped and randomly shot him. And uh, shortly after that, a man named Lloyd Danielson III was arrested 100 miles from the site of the attack. He was taken into custody and charged with felony assault. So that happened. Uh, But then uh, things quickly started to unravel. Mr. Danielson, the accused uh, shooter, had an alibi, and his alibi actually held up under questioning. And I I guess what happened was that he had a GPS device in his vehicle, and uh, police looked at it, and it showed that he was nowhere near the site of the shooting when it happened. So uh, the police then turned back to Ray Dolan, uh, the hitchhiking author, the supposed victim, and they confronted him uh, with the evidence, or the lack thereof, and it was then that Mr. Dolan confessed to having shot himself with a small caliber handgun. Uh, he had fabricated the entire story. It was all complete bullshit. Uh, and so now the question is, why did he do it? And, you know, I think clearly he wanted some attention. Uh, and if, and in that case, you know, his story was picked up by the Associated Press. It made international news uh, because of its sensational nature and its obvious built-in ironies. Uh, a man is hitchhiking in America in search of kindness. He gets shot in broad daylight by a passing motorist for no reason. Uh, which when you think about it is pretty fucked up and pretty violent and pretty morbid and kind of twistedly funny, which makes it perfect for the evening news. So, you know, on the level of attention, the stunt worked. It worked beautifully. And, uh, you know, Mr. Dolan got the media attention that it would seem he craved. And uh, then, uh, to take it one step further, people in the media are now speculating that the stunt was conducted with book promotion and book sales in mind. Uh, and I should add that, you know, the guy does not have a book deal, uh, to the best of my knowledge, at least as far as I know right now. Uh, and so the question is, was he doing this to try to get one? And, uh, you know, and if he wasn't, and he was simply, uh, deranged and depressed and suicidal, uh, you know, why then did he shoot himself in the arm? So it's all very strange. Uh, it's a sad story in a lot of ways. And, and to me, uh, it sort of feels like it's becoming an Errol Morris movie, or a uh, Werner Herzog film. And uh, what's sort of grimly funny uh, about this is the fact that now I'm interested in it. Uh, now I'm interested uh, in Ray Dolan and his story, and, you know, whereas before, when it was just about some guy hitchhiking in search of American kindness, uh, I couldn't care less. I find that ridiculous. Uh, but then you, know, you, you add this flesh wound, this gunshot, this hoax, and it sort of changes everything. And I, I find it macabre and uh, compelling and somehow representative of the kind of desperation that uh, so many people seem to be feeling, you know, in the country at large and in publishing in particular. You know, like maybe if I shoot my arm, someone will pay attention. Maybe if I shoot my arm, Random House will offer me a contract. And so, you know, it functions on a certain level as an advertisement, which uh, in, in a circuitous way brings me to today's guest, Kate Christensen. And, uh, you know, you'll as you'll hear in just a moment, she and I get to talking about how everything today, and especially everything online, is essentially an advertisement. 
you know, uh, you start to wonder to yourself, uh, do we live in an age where everything is an advertisement? Uh, like for instance, you're eating an apple and then you're tweeting about that and suddenly, uh, you're in a commercial you know, you've, you've basically made a billboard out of yourself where you're holding an apple and you're on a billboard on the side of the road, but the side of the road is a computer screen or something. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So anyway, Kate Christensen, uh, very, very excited to have her on the program. Uh, she's a terrific author. She's written six critically acclaimed novels, including The Great Man, which won the 2008 Penn Faulkner Award. And her most recent work, the Astral is now available in paperback from Anchor Books, and she and I are going to have a conversation right now. I'm standing on the second floor of an old brick house in Portland, Maine, that my boyfriend and I bought last fall and that we now live in. Oh, wow. So Portland, Maine, huh? Yeah. That's a great town. I, I was there years and years ago. Um, I actually hiked the Appalachian Trail in Maine, and I stayed in Portland for a couple days and loved it. What part of it did you stay in? Oh, goodness. You know, I wouldn't know. It was a little bit outside of it. I was at a friend's uh, house. Like They kind of put me up and like fed me for two consecutive days because I was hiking and starving, you know. So that was that was basically it. But I just remember like, you know, hanging around in town with my friend and just, um, you know, being really impressed with Portland. I'm surprised um, at how great it is because it's so small and I'm such a New Yorker. I lived in New York for 20 years and um, relocating to a town that has 65,000 people in it, you know, I thought, oh, small town life, that'll be fun, um, and really look forward to it. But it also has kind of a cosmopolitan feel to it. And um, it's a food town, and that's that's the thing I love most about it, besides the climate and the people. It's like everyone, I'm obsessed with food. Everyone is obsessed with food. Um, so I feel right at home. So what kind of food? We talk like seafood? Is is that what they're into there, or is it everything? Well, it's pretty much everything. Um, but I'm growing increasingly obsessed with seafood just because I live in Portland, Maine, and it's readily available and really good and really fresh. Um, but basically, I mean, there's a great farmer's market here, too, and um, it's on Saturdays, and they, they have, you know, this beautiful bounty of wondrous things that, you know, you buy and take home and <laughs> it's pretty much whatever looks good. Yeah. Well, and okay. And so what's, what about the transition from living in uh, New York city for all those years and then, um, you know, moving to a significantly smaller place? 
like how has that transition been? You know, like, well, cause I think about that. I live in Los Angeles and you know, I, uh, for some reason, and I feel like I talk about this on this podcast too much, but it's like uh, you, you sit around when you're living in this big place and you get used to the trappings of it. And I guess they could work in the, in the reverse as well. But I always try to imagine like uh, living in a smaller place. Would I be bored? So are you bored or do you find that that's all uh, not true? It's all not true. It would be hard for me to be bored um, because I think I think writers can really live anywhere and not necessarily be bored. I'm such a homebody. And the older I get, the more I like staying home and cooking and reading and writing and um, watching movies. And I'm, I, I think that I'm probably pretty boring, and this town is more exciting than I am. I mean, there's a lot of stuff <laughs> yeah. I don't go to. Yeah, you, just, you, just, you, <laughs> but, actually, you actually just solved it for me. Like, what am I worried about? Like, I don't even leave the house. <laughs> right. It's nice not to leave the house and have it be quiet and clean outside and um, uh, and have and have sort of, you know, trees right outside my window. And um, But, you know... I, I moved here gradually. It took me it took me about two years to get out of New York. From the time I decided it was time to go to the time that I bought this house, and um, it's because New York probably always is the same. Like any glamorous, exciting big city, exerts this force that keeps you there. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I think I, I was excreted by New York. It was sort of time for me to go, and, I <laughs> and it sort of just like it kind of you know it kind of it, it made it so hard for me to stay there that it was almost like a peristaltic bodily function that the city was performing on me. Like, it's not worth staying in New York after a certain point of life. I mean, it's, it, it becomes it becomes a kind of um, out of balance thing where I just felt like, yeah, I'm a Brooklyn, I'm a Brooklynite, whatever that is. I'm here for life. I'm committed. I'm not going to leave. Because, you know, I moved around a lot until I got to New York. And then I spent pretty much most of 20 years living in North Brooklyn. Um, and to have that sense of rootedness and sense of place, and that's what the astral came out of, too, um, gave me the authority to write about a place that I knew so deeply and well over two decades. Um, that was really hard to give up. And the, the fact that it's so expensive there now and that it's not... It's, I, I fell out of love with New York. I think after September 11th, it started happening gradually, and after Giuliani's administration, um, as it became more corporate, and there was less and less street life, and you couldn't drink a beer on the sidewalk, and uh, things and tourists sort of invaded, like um, like not weed. Um, it's it's changed. So it's part 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 of it that it's not the same city that it was, and part of it's that I'm not the same person. Um, I'm 20 years older, and I don't need to be there anymore. And as a young writer, you kind of want to be there. You want to be in the middle of it all. You want to make connections, meet other writers, um, go to parties. Although I did very little writerly schmoozing in New York because I'm averse to it and bad at it. Um, well, no, that's interesting. But, that you say, it's interesting that you say that because I can't stand it. Like I, I'm, I'm a social person too. Like I like to, uh, I like to hang out with people and I, you know, I always have a good time if I go somewhere. So it's a little bit complex, but like, I can't I can't stand the schmoozing. I can't even stand it on a computer. I can't stand social media. Like it drives me crazy. You mean Twitter? All, all and um and I should say I mean, there's a there's a uh, there's a hypocrisy to my complaining because I'm on the stuff because I feel like I have to not only for my uh you know not really for for me personally as much as it is for like my my online lit site the nervous breakdown like this podcast I feel like I have to tweet to get the word out about yeah. the show, you know, there's certain like necessity 
Um, you know, it, it feels necessary for those particular purposes, but I just, every time I go to Facebook and I look at my wall, I feel a little worse than I did before. And I don't know exactly <laughs> why, but it just, it erodes my soul in some like, and, and it, and it can be like people's vacation photos or pe- like even pictures of their kids make me feel like shit. And it's like, I don't even know, I don't know what that means or what that says about me, but it's like, well, I, I just feel like it's not real. I feel like. Even and I think that's the thing is that I'm looking at some a picture of somebody's kid, and I'm questioning their motives. Like, what? Why'd you put this up there? Are you trying to soften me so that you can then try to sell me something? Or do you know what I'm saying? Like, it just it feels strange to me. It feels like advertising is what you're saying. Everything, it's yeah. Advertising itself. Exactly, exactly. And then I feel icky when I do it, and um, I don't know. I just have complicated feelings about it, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure if it's if it's good for me. You know. I, I know, I feel the same way, and yet yet I was on Facebook, like, not 20 minutes before you called. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm constantly on that fucking thing. It's driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I almost feel like if the information is going to exist, I need access to it, whether I like it or not. Yeah. And why, I don't know. It's like, it's like, it's, it's a sweaty compulsion, um, sort of, it's faux, it's like fake information, just like you said. Yeah. Well, and, and let me ask you this. I mean, you, you talk about being sort of a, I mean, writers are all this way. Like there's, there's kind of a loner component to any writer and you spend yeah. a lot, you spend a lot of time alone working. You spend a lot of time, um, you know, in your office or in your apartment or wherever your workspace is. And do you think that uh, it's overly simplistic to say that, uh, you know, the, the compulsion to visit like, you know, Facebook or Twitter or wherever it is socially on the web uh, is rooted in loneliness. Do you think that's it, or do you think there's other aspects to it as well? Well, I've been hearing this theory bandied about a lot. I guess uh, somebody, I forgot her name, wrote a book about it, and there was a long article, maybe by her. She might be the, the big the big powder of this as a theory, that it is it comes out of and causes loneliness. It's sort of a self-perpetuating loneliness machine or yeah. something. Um, but I don't feel lonely, and it doesn't make me feel lonely to participate in social media. So maybe I'm different from the average user or maybe there's something else at work. I just, I feel like we're sort of, we're sort of, we're so social as a species. And it's, to me, it's so lazy of me to get to sit at my computer instead of leaving the house and have an illusion of a social life. Um, But social, social interactions are so anxiety producing on so many levels. I love seeing my close friends for dinner or, you know, having people come and visit who I love and we can go to the beach. Um, but the average party gives me sort of really low-level hives, but um, the hives are there. And it's it's just sort of parties are kind of scary. Like you might say something wrong, you might drink too much, you might offend someone, someone might offend you, you might see someone you don't want to see. It's sort of this, this entrapped sort of zoo-like free-for-all of, of social possibility. But sitting at home on Facebook, I can control who I see and how I see them. And, and I mean, it, it's kind of sci-fi in a way. That's, it, it feels very um, artificial and um, yet comforting. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, and there's like, it's like there's like gradients. It's like the difference between a text message and a phone call. You know, like right. even there, you're, you're like the text message you can control. You don't have to respond if you don't want to. It can be... You know, but then the phone, you know, with the phone call, you actually have to sit there and talk and and then to actually hang out with somebody in person. Well, Jesus, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's funny that it's attenuating toward not being in real time and being more and more virtual 
like every advance in, in communicative technology seems to be going in that direction yeah. to get us further and further away from actual, actual, real life, real face, bodily, temporal um, contact. Yeah, and then as far as like writing goes, and as far as like your New York existence goes, um, you talk about like young writers wanting to be there in Brooklyn and be living in the center of it and be going to all the parties and connecting and networking and doing all that stuff. Um, and you did not do a ton of that, uh, even when you were at, at that age and in that time of your life, correct? Correct. I was I was very shy and very awkward, and I felt like I hadn't proved myself yet, and I was terrified of other writers. Um, and I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, and it was two years. I mean, I think that sort of set me up for New York to be a hermit and to hang out with painters and musicians and, you know, other people who did other things instead of writing. Because the Iowa Writers Workshop, to me, I don't know how many people experience it this way, but um, was completely scary and competitive and kind of bitchy. And I, I made really close friends when I stuck with them. Um, but the whole atmosphere, and Frank Conroy was running it when I was there. This was back in the late 80s. Um, and he he dismissed women sort of as writing little coming-of-age novels and beneath his notice, and um, he was the head of the workshop. So it sort of set the tone for not being very fun to be a woman there. Um, and so, oh, wait, I forgot your question. I feel like I'm rambling. Well, no, no, I mean, but it's, 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 all, it's, all, it's all to the good. I mean, it's about the social aspects of being a writer, and I, I guess what I'm ultimately driving at is how important that is. And mm -hmm. that's a, I think that's a really interesting question in, in any age, but especially now and especially with regard to um, you know, I guess starting with MFAs and then where you live and the environment you live in, especially if you're in Brooklyn near the epicenter of publishing, uh, but then also yeah. online. Like how, how important is, uh, you know, the social aspect to succeeding as a writer? I think a lot of people, myself included, wonder about that. Like you can spend all this time uh, trying to, uh, you know, build up your following or whatever it is. And what does it ultimately lead to? You know, right. I'm not sure if it even matters. I think it's just the work ultimately, you know? So do I. Um, but yet I think there's this compulsion to be part of this um, chattering, twittering, Facebooking sort of networking thing that's going on. Um, and that actually feels very cozy to me to help to sort of post things about my friend's work or post interviews that they've done. Um, it's, it's, it's so easy to do and it feels really good. It's like, Sort of like you know any any good thing you do for someone else, as opposed to self promotion, which is which is that icky, sweaty, uncomfortable feeling. Right, right. Well, no, that's kind of how I that's kind of how I view it. It's like I sort of grade myself or measure myself, and it's like if I'm doing uh, links for this show, for instance, I feel okay about that because I, I'm active. There's someone else involved, you know. Like when I when I post I, a link to your show, I'll be like, oh, okay, so Kate's gonna hopefully get some new readers out of it or whatever, and. Um, that feels okay to me, but when it's constantly me, you know, chirping about something I've done or, or, or like, or like just neurotically like talking at people, um, yeah. you know, I just start to feel like, uh, you know, something is the matter. And, uh, you know, before I, I transition, I want to make sure that I talk a little bit more about Iowa because I think it's really fascinating and I think it's fascinating to a lot of writers and, um, you know, the competitive aspect of it. Um, you know, the, the thing, the way that I think I've characterized it before is that Iowa is like the Saturday night live equivalent for comedians. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like 
to have gone to Iowa is essentially to be a comedian and to get on SNL. Like, did you, like, can you talk a little bit more about, uh, the atmosphere there? I mean, like how competitive really was it in workshop? I mean, were people really going after each other? Workshops weren't competitive. It was because we had a teacher there who was, who was monitoring the level of hostility and, and sort of, we had to be, we had to, we were on our best behavior. So workshop itself was actually, and I had Alan, Alan, sorry, Alan Gurganis was my teacher for one workshop, and Jim McPherson was my teacher for another workshop, and they are the most kind, gentle people, very supportive and very sort of thoughtful, and so it, it didn't engender that. But outside of workshop, at, at the parties and in the halls of the building, it used to be in the Soviet bloc, sort of 60s-era, horrible, um, called ETB, the English Philosophy Building. Now it's in this beautiful little Victorian house on the Isle River, completely different. Um, but back then it had this sort of, you know, kind of creepy Big Brother feeling. Um, <laughs> but it, I can't talk about Iowa without talking about being a woman at Iowa back then. It's changed a lot because now they have a female director. And I was just there at the 75th reunion and I could see that. The, and we talked about this, about how the atmosphere has changed since Frank left. Um, and, that, and that, like SNL, it was this kind of boys' network and women had to bond together to fit in. Um, some of my female writer friends and I formed our own workshop outside of the workshop to read each other's work because we had the stigma of being women writers. And it started back then, and it's sort of never really gone away. And I know this is being talked about a lot now um, among women writers that, you know, men are so disproportionately reviewed and given awards and taken seriously. And um, that was certainly true in Iowa. And I was 25, and so I didn't. I, I was shocked because I'd grown up reading women writers and thinking, "Oh, they're as good as men," <laughs> and, and it had never occurred to me that this would happen. I was so naive, um, and so I, I found myself. I think, and I think what I'm reacting to is that also that the men were able to somehow come off as much more confident and serious and worthy of being taken seriously, whereas a lot of us women were sort of skeptical and self-doubting and puzzled um, by life and by um, our talents or lack thereof and, and more self-deprecating. And it's it sort of... Um, See, I'm a woman then. I'm a total woman. <laughs> some men are, you know. And some, but I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't generalize really too much, but I, I mean, generalities are always exceptions. Um, and, and there were exceptions at Iowa, too. Um, I had some really good male friends who were just like me, just sort of like, what, <laughs> what is it all? Um, what is this writing thing that we've embarked on? Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I, workshops, uh, they're strange places. I mean, they're hot houses, and they're, you're lucky to be there. You get two years to write. You come out with an MFA, whatever that means, whatever good that does. But... Um, it seems to have some sort of cachet, even though there's people who disparage it and hate workshops and probably the people that didn't go. Um, so, no, but I mean, like, to, to, to be like, uh, to, to add like a, another uh, analogy, it's like, uh, it's like you're a made man or a made woman, like, for, you know, mafia wise, like when you come out of Iowa, I feel like if you have that credential, uh, it confers a certain, uh, it confers a certain legitimacy on you in the eyes of, of publishing. No? Did you not feel that? Or? It's all about the work, really, because I had my had my little Iowa MFA, and I moved to New York, and then I didn't publish a novel 
for almost 10 years after I got to New York because, you know, to publish a novel, you have to write a novel and it has to be good. And even if you have an MFA from Iowa, I feel like Iowa knocked me on my ass as a writer. I was sort of at Reed. I went to Reed in, in Portland, Oregon before I got to Iowa. And at Reed, I was, you know, one of very few writers. And we were all pretty serious writers. And um, But there weren't that many of us, and, and it wasn't competitive. And I, I felt like I was really writing well there. And then I got to Iowa, and I just promptly got anxious and self-conscious and started trying to sound like Faulkner and um, got earnest. And uh, everything I wrote there was crap um, because I was so anxious and because of the, the pressure to be great and Everyone's looking around, or they were when I was there, like, who's great? Which of us? <laughs> <laughs> so not only did you have to get published, you had to be great. Oh. And, um, yeah, and who knows who's great when you're 25 or 30? And we're all, we were all young, and we were all sort of insecure. Now I see. Um, but I got to New York and floundered a lot. And I guess my MFA helped me get a job in publishing when I first got there. I was lucky enough to work at William Morrow um, as an editorial assistant for $17,500 a year. Um, but, you know, I, you could almost live on that in 1989 and 90, um, as I recall. I was poor, but I, I, I could eat. And um, I think that probably I got that job in part because of my MFA from Iowa. So it did help me get my first job. But after that... I don't. I'm not really sure what it did for me, except to something I could say, something I can say on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, because like it's, it, it seems that it would give a person confidence, you know, like maybe it's like the getting into Iowa as opposed to the degree itself, you know. Um, that, but the, yeah. But, but then once you get out, I think you make a good point. Like once you get out, it's like great. I have the MFA. Like now what? It ultimately just comes down to the book, and and there's no way to fake that. You know, you have to, you have to do the work, and you have to write well. Uh, otherwise, you know, the rest is sort of a moot point. That's exactly right. It took me about three or four years to start writing well after Iowa, just because I was so cowed by my experience there. Not only because of that, also because I was earning a living and living in New York and drinking too much, and I was in a bad relationship and doing all those things that you, many people do in their late twenties. That kept me from writing. So it wasn't only, I can't just blame that experience. But um, I finally started writing my first novel, which was in the drink, in a spirit of being really sick of being humiliated in these jobs. And it's about a job I had working for this countess on the Upper East Side. Um, and it's Wait, sort of. Working for, a, working for a countess? I, yes, I was, I was the personal secretary to the Countess of Romanonates who published spy memoirs in the 90s. Um, the Spy Wore Red, The Spy Went Dancing, and The Spy Wore Silk, which no one remembers, but they were New York Times bestsellers. I sort of do remember those. <laughs> I'm, the um, one, I'm the one. You're, you're, well, finally somebody remembers. <laughs> Did you live in New York back then? No, no, I didn't. I'm, I'm just, I just, it definitely rings a bell, though, and I'm not entirely sure why. You know, I'm sure I read it somewhere. She went on Letterman, and she sort of she did the talk show circuit, and she was a society she was a figure in society. She knew Imelda. I talked on the phone with Imelda Marcos and Nancy Reagan and um, Betsy Bloomingdale, and sort of you know all all the all the Republican society ladies with helmet heads. Um, and I remember one day she waved at me when Nancy Reagan was on the phone. She waved at me. I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Interesting. Anyway, she was she was really difficult, and I was really a terrible secretary. So she yelled at me a lot, and so the novel came out of that sort of. I needed to write. There was there was some imbalance not in the universe, but just in my own head, in my own ego, of having been humiliated one too many times. And um, I was a big fan of the novel Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amos back then. It gave me great comfort while I had that job to read about Jim Dixon and his job and his sort of humiliations. And so that was the touchstone novel I used to write my first novel. I usually have one as I'm writing a novel, um, a novel that I'm thinking of that is it not not really a it's not really a model but it's it's a it's a it's a spur and inspiration. Yeah, no, and it's interesting. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about all this because, you know, you were you were meant. You, you know, when we were discussing Iowa, you were talking about, um, you know, feeling cowed and and how the experience was difficult and how it took you a while to, um, get your confidence back or to get into uh, like a really uh, robust writing practice where you were actually working. Um, on a novel, but at, at the same time, um, you know, in addition, I guess, to maybe the issue of confidence or whatever you want to call it, it also sounds like you were finally, um, you, you know, you finally got to the writing due to, uh, discomfort or pain or this humiliation. Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes in life, yeah. it's interesting. I hear it over and over again, uh, from people on the show and from writer friends I have that like, you know, oftentimes this is the case. It's not that circumstances, uh, become uh, ideal for writing. It's often that they are the opposite of ideal, and it finally just gets so unbearable that a book comes out of it. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's it's almost like it saves you. When you need saving, there's your writing. And if if um, the painter Philip Gustin once said that in order to paint, he had to all the other painters had to leave the room, and that everyone he knew had to leave the room, and then his family had to leave the room, and then he had to leave the room. And as soon as all those people were gone, including himself, he could start. He could start working. And I think there's something very unique about feeling humiliated and and sort of in a lot of pain and floundering um, that really is is good for self abnegation and and creates the necessary absence of self and ego to to really write and to really and to really let the writing take over to fill a void, I guess. Because I back in those days, it's not so true anymore, but. Getting started um, is the hardest part, and I guess that's a really good way to to start a disciplined writing practice in your life is by by filling a void or by by comforting yourself. I guess would be the simplest way to say it. So, how did you do it? So, how you know you were working full time and you were doing all this other stuff? Like, how did the actual practice um, get implemented? I started temping. I quit that job, and then I worked at the Steiner School on the Upper East Side um, as an English teacher. I taught ninth grade English and was a receptionist. That didn't go so well. I'm just not cut out to work at a job where I have to show up. <laughs> as, and, and, which is which is common for writers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I started temping, and that was so much better. I just showed up. You know, I, you didn't have to dress up so much. I, I had a big problem with dressing up. I have, I have clothes issues in terms of corporate clothing, and I I lived um, at that time in the East Village, and I had a boyfriend, but he was never there. So I, I sort of lived alone in this little apartment in the East Village on second between first and second. And when I had days off, I, I could work maybe three days a week at a temp job. And on my days off, I got up and I made a big pot of very strong tea, and I started working. And it was just this, I was so excited by that point because I realized that I'd found this voice that I'd lost 
um, for so many years, and here it was back, and that I was allowed to sort of be angry and funny and and sharp and to use all these big words that I've been collecting since you know since I was little and um, reading voraciously and just loving the feeling of them in my mind, and that was part of the excitement was the vocabulary um, that this woman uses because. She's so downtrodden. She knows big words. It's like one of her bulwarks against total <laughs> nihilism. <laughs> um, sort of, you know, like me. Um, but I would, I would just do it every day. And of course, that's the only way to get anything written. It's the only way. And every day. And I, I, with this first book, because I had never really written a novel before, I became so obsessed with it that I, waking, I would wake up in the middle of the night, take notes. Um, I think everyone does this, especially with their first few books. Um, um, it's like it's like your first baby, maybe. I don't have kids, but I mean, I don't think the success of children are quite as you know, they don't require the same degree of obsessive attention as the as the first ones. Um, so I would I, I just poured everything I had into this book, and I was alone most of the time. Um, I had very few friends. My boyfriend was never there. I was estranged in those years from my family, and so I went to my temp job, and then I wrote. And little by little, a very bad first draft emerged, but it was a first draft. Um, and so I, I actually had in my hands a manuscript that needed work. So I joined a writing group, and I'm still part of it. And I think we've been together now many years, I guess almost more than 20 years. That's so funny. Wow. And so they helped me with structure, and eventually it found a very long, long, terrible road into print but that was how it started well and so when you talk about that first draft like this specific i have a specific question about this part of the process for you and how you work uh you know there's always there's obviously like that delicate balance between permissive uh behavior where you allow yourself to make mistakes and you don't lock up too much um and demand perfection (laughs) on that first run but then there's also the other side of the coin where you're you know you don't want to be lazy and in your writing and get too right. per, get too permissive on the other side of it. So when you work, um, and I guess we'll, we'll start with this first one and I'm assuming it's carried over to some extent with your other books, but do you, how do you go on those early drafts, you know, on that, on that first draft in particular, you know, how exacting are you, are you with yourself and how quickly do you allow yourself to work? I have a daily word limit and the word limit is a thousand words. And I don't go over it, and I make sure I do that amount. I found through trial and error, like sometimes it was more, sometimes it was less with other books, that a thousand words is enough to get some momentum, but not. So, I find that I have that much in me of a novel in, on, in, every day, that that's about three pages or something, um, where I can I can I can be very careful. I don't go too fast. I spend the right amount of time, sort of getting these three pages, so that I can abandon the book for the day and feel like. There's some chunk now that wasn't there before that sort of extends from the the rest of it, and it's it's like um, it's like I don't know what it's like. I can't think of any metaphor, which is unusual. Um, but it, it's it's really it's like a practice. It's like any kind of discipline, I guess. Um, when you, I find my pace. I find some days it's incredibly hard to get the word count, and I've. It, it's it, to me. It seems when I talk about my daily word count, it feels so artificial and so sort of um, I don't know. But I, I I can't do it without that. It's the goad that I need. That I'll be so disappointed in myself when the end of the day comes and I haven't written my thousand words on the novel. And 
generally it takes me all day, and I will procrastinate forever. I mean, I'm I'm like the master procrastinator. Um, and you know, you can you can really do nothing and and feel like <laughs> as long as I'm looking out the window thinking about the book, I feel like I'm working on it. But it turns out I'm really not because I'm not writing. <laughs> yeah, you're... and I don't know. <laughs> I write really instinctively, and I don't know where I'm going until I actually type the words, and I don't write by hand. Um, it's much too laborious, and I find it's very tedious, and I find I write very badly by hand. I write much better if I'm seeing the words as if they were already in print. I get a, I get a much quicker understanding, and it saves me many steps to, to type directly, um, and and also it's faster. Yeah, uh, I, I was going to say that's the same with me. I type so much faster than I can write longhand. It's just I, I haven't written longhand yeah. since I was in school. <laughs> I don't even remember how. I mean, I hardly ever write checks anymore either. I feel like handwriting is going the way of the dodo or something. You, um, you might be right. I mean, I, honestly, because I, I I rarely, rarely write anything by hand. I write some postcards sometimes, you know, but that's about it. Yeah, and doesn't it feel weird when you start um, writing? You look at your hand. I look at my handwriting now, and I often don't recognize it. It's it's really gotten bad. Yeah, I, that, I used to that's what I find, up. too. I, I used to have great handwriting. Now I, I'm terrible at it. Maybe this is happening, universe. Maybe this is another offshoot or development or lack thereof of, um, of, of this sort of online media thing. Where my whole life takes place on the keyboard. Yeah, well, now it's that. And then I've been reading all these articles lately about how sitting down is bad for you. Have you read those things? That'll put like the fear of God in your heart. <laughs> It's like if you sit down for more than like, you know, 90 consecutive minutes, like your lifespan shrinks by like 15% or something. I'm just like, I am so fucked because I've been sitting down since I was like 21, essentially, <laughs> with like a daily walk. I do go for a daily walk, you know, but like that's about it. And, and even that isn't enough to like, you know, um, to what's the word to kind of fix the problem. You have to get up every hour and do some like moving around and stretching and when you write it's just you know it's obviously not or, or if you work any office job you're obviously sitting in a chair so many jobs these days you're in front of a computer hunched over a keyboard or driving or i mean who isn't now except you know cashiers they're going to live forever because they're standing up behind the cash visits for all day what i and waiters you know people who uh, wait tables they're moving around like uh, my friend is uh he he always looks like really like fit, and all he does is wait tables, and it's because he's <laughs> moving around constantly, carrying things, you know. Uh, I know I've been reading these studies too, and it's also about weight gain and how your body just deteriorates and you lose muscle tone. So not only are you going to die, but you're also just going to be this sort of flopping, muscle-free sort of you know blob. <laughs> it's really really depressing. You're just going to die like a squid. It's basically the, <laughs> that's my that's my destiny. Without the wherewithal to get out of your chair, you'll just die in your chair. That's kind of. <laughs> I have a dog and I walk him, but you know these studies aren't very comforting about that. Yeah, you can, you can exercise your little head off, but if you sit those hours, there's nothing you can do. Right, you like you have to get like I tried to do it today. Like I actually because I, I will, uh, and I've talked about this before. Like I'm very susceptible to health trends, so I read this stuff. And I will try to remind myself to like get up and like stand up while I'm working, and you know, I, then I start to feel I start to feel idiotic because I'm doing like squats, and you know, I'm like, what am I doing? You know, like in front of my. Computer. You may feel idiotic, but you'll live to 120. <laughs> Say again. Well, you might feel idiotic, but you'll live to 120. Yeah, let's hope so. You know, it's just it's it's just like. 
I don't know. It, 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 like, you know, on the one hand, you feel good about yourself because you're doing the work and you're, you know, you're in the, in the chair. But like, this is how cruel life is. While you're in the chair the whole time, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I'm killing myself. <laughs> you know? like, I'm finally in front, of my, in front of my computer working and I'm doing the, the writing work, but this is so bad for me. Do you know what I'm saying? There's like a cruel irony to that. It's so cruel. And I'm so sick. All these studies are just, they just drive the nails into your coffin like one by one. But, oh, sunscreen now causes cancer. Oh, does I'm, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I didn't, <laughs> th- th- I didn't know that. Thanks for telling me, Kate. I appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs> I got more, too. Vitamins, they're bad for you. Oh, they are? Well, now, and like that's the thing too about like reading the news online and these scientific studies. Like, there's always like there's always a new development, and it always tends to contradict something that had previously existed as like a fact in my mind. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, it never ends. You know, it's it's just kind of like a constant. Uh, and and I guess it's good that we're you know reevaluating our positions constantly. But it, I need some solidity in my life. I need I need to know that I need to know that my my multivitamin is working for me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Well, wait a couple months, and then it will be, because there will be another study that contradicts the one that says that it's bad for you. Exactly. You just need to be patient and ride the waves of studies, and just keep doing what you're doing, and they'll probably find that sitting does something else. It lowers your blood pressure, and it, I don't know. I bet you anything. Yeah, let's hope so. I don't buy that it's that bad for you. I really don't. Yeah, and I especially, I mean, like, I, you know, if you're if you're watching out for your health otherwise, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's, if you're, if you're walking the dog or you're getting out and doing something, it's got to be counterbalanced a little bit but, um, i'm sorry and if you drink enough red wine which they've now discovered is really really good for you that's what i do i drink red wine every day uh and not and not to excess either and i don't want to like sound like i'm a total lush but like i do have a couple glasses of red wine every day and uh i eat an incredible amount of dark chocolate because i've also heard that that's good for you and like it is. yeah and so red but these are two things that like you know it's fun to it's actually fun to consume that are, you know, supposedly good for you. And like, I can justify, uh, dark chocolate. Like you would not believe <laughs> I'm, I'm, con- oh, yeah. I'm convinced that there's just absolutely nothing bad about it at all. It's magical. Yes, exactly. I have honestly, I, and I'm not even exaggerating. I do bestow like a certain magical quality to it. I think it is like a really healthy food and it makes me happy. I think that alone, um, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's it's a it is pleasure inducing, makes me happy, and I think like biochemically that's got to have some sort of positive impact. I don't see how it can't. Yeah, well, I'm glad we're on the same page with that. Totally. <laughs> Thank you for helping me justify my behavior. <laughs> um, and speaking of like, you know, I guess like uh, this will be sort of an uh, awkward segue, but you know, but when it comes to like healing and health and things like that, I want to talk about like a macro level theme um, at work in the astral. And I was reading about it online, um, you know, in interviews you did and, uh, you know, um, you know, at the time of the publication of the hardcover or whatever, and um, the death of love and how we heal from that. And that seems to lie at the heart of the book. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how it was born and what the writing process gave you in terms of an understanding of how human beings um, heal and and get through like really difficult times and survive and evolve in all of those you know in, in any in you know there's a obviously a variety of different um circumstances and situations that you know uh, might qualify but in particular like a love relationship and and the disintegration of that um 
I was, when I conceived of the book, I was married and living in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, in the house that my husband and I owned together. And when I actually started writing the book, um, I had left New York, I'd left my marriage, I wasn't living in my house anymore, and I felt like I was in exile from that marriage by choice. So I wasn't Harry Quirk, and my, my marriage was nothing like his. He got thrown out, his wife thought he cheated, he didn't, not this time, um, and so forth and so on. And my own marriage ended under completely different circumstances. And um, But I, I, I felt allied with Harry, if that's the right word. I felt, I felt like we were going through the same thing by the time I started writing the book, which was really weird. I mean, I feel like I kind of knew I was going to leave my marriage when I thought of the book, but I didn't know it yet. And so I conceived of this novel of um, somebody very different from me who has been thrown out of his marriage. And the book I wrote before that was about a woman who leaves her marriage and goes to Mexico, trouble. And so I, I really think that, I mean, I was leaving before I left, and I was expressing this. I was, I was letting my characters in my imagination um, leave marriages to see what would happen to them. And so, of course, in trouble, she goes down to Mexico and meets a hot younger man. I mean, it's a total fantasy. It's like... Um, no one gets mad at her. Everyone's fine with it. Um, <laughs> not a it's like, oh, man, maybe that will happen. Um, and in fact, that, that pretty much was what happened to me, um, interestingly enough. But I didn't go to Mexico. I went to New England. Um, but with the astral, yeah? Oh, I was just going to say, I was going to say, I went to Portland, Maine. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up in hot Portland, Maine. Um, <laughs> Um, with the astral, I was I was going through exactly what Harry was going through, and I hadn't expected it. My life caught up to that book. So, as I as he was obsessing about his marriage and obsessing about what it was and what it had been and what it means to have a marriage die, and what it means to to have all these years with somebody and then it's it's over, it's ended. Those were exactly the things that I was I was sort of ruminating about. Not ruminating. I mean, I was I was deeply grieving, and sort of in shock and and um, just so sad. I mean, the end of a marriage is so sad, it's, um, especially when you're really good friends. It's like you're losing somebody that, you know, not losing, but you're losing a life that was with another person that had a history, that had weight, that had experiences. Um, and during my marriage, which lasted from, from our wedding day till I left, 12 years, um, you know, a lot of people we loved died, and we traveled around a lot and bought and renovated a house and adopted a dog, and we had a real life together and a whole group of friends, and when that ended, I lost such a part of myself, in a way, and I had to, I had to sort of regroup. So writing this book was at once excruciatingly difficult because I was writing straight into the heart of what I didn't necessarily want to be writing about, but, you know, I, the novel I was going to write, um, there was no escape during that time, and I really, I really stared it in the face with Harry, what it, what it all means, and, and, um, but it was also comforting because he kept me company in it. There was somebody else going through the same thing I was going through, who was the narrator of my novel, so I could channel it all through him and write about his experience, which was so different from mine, and yet, you know, I could, there would be these little moments where my experiences would dovetail directly with his, and I would just feel this little burst of, ah, relief, like, okay, me and Harry, we're in it together. That's, that's, that's good, and, you know, that's kind of comforting. And it was also a way of forgiving myself, not to get all sort of earnest and but whatever, because 
it's a, it's a hard subject to talk about in terms of a book because it's so personal. But there was there was a whole sense of, you know, that I was the bad guy when I left my marriage and that Harry was skulking around Greenpoint feeling like the bad guy. But there was also this feeling of, wait a minute, no one's really the bad guy here. Um, that's just, that's sort of how it looks to various people who are, who are watching from the outside. Since if you're the one who leaves, then obviously, you know, you're the asshole. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, I know, but it's like, you know, a relationship's always two people, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes more. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. But it never, you know, it's never just the, it's never just the behaviors of one person, you know, it's, it's complex, and that's the thing about uh, not just relationships, but so many things, including things we've already talked about, um, you know, like, I, like relationships can be complex. I can be confused by Facebook, so, I mean, goodness gracious, <laughs> when it comes to, like, intimacy and all that kind of stuff like there's so much of it that's not only complex and difficult to parse but there's also a, a lot of it that feels so mysterious to me you know what i'm saying like yeah, um, totally. it, it's just like be it, it might be beyond my grasp or, or maybe anyone's grasp but it's just uh you know it's elusive and so i can i mean it's obviously one of the reasons why people write about this stuff you know that's exactly right and, and why it's so helpful to write about it in a, in a novel as opposed to personal essays or, you know, philosophy or therapeutic self-help writing. Novels are, novels are mysterious, like relationships, and you can get at the complexity, hopefully, of, of how no one's the bad guy and how there is no answer and how, I mean, as Harry worked his way through the end of his marriage um, or, or what, what, he, what he isn't sure is the end of his marriage, he doesn't know what's going to happen through the whole book, but he, he kind of, he had a series of little little wake-up calls, I think. I don't see them as epiphanies at all or revelations or anything remotely religious. Um, but they were just little psychic sort of things in his mind where something would fall into place and he would say, oh, and the fact that she kicked him out allowed him to see things more clearly. You see things in exile that you don't see when you're comfortably ensconced in your chair, in your house, with your spouse sort of there and, and you know, everything is as usual. These upheavals are really, um, and they're sort of a good novelistic starting point that someone someone's been ejected from something or is leaving something or is changing and change is a really good it's a really good um what's the word it's a really good lens to look at things through well and the other thing too about it is that like you know you, like we're i think i'm going to be talking about the same thing but maybe uh, slightly differently is like what you're talking about is distance you know distance from your previous relationship distance from um that home environment or whatever it is and the perspective that lens and then um, to flip it and to talk about it creatively uh, the fact that you and you know you had Harry as your company and as sort of your surrogate to kind of explore these different things um, you know the fact that he's male and you're female and the fact that his situation is markedly different from yours you know having that distance like was that helpful for, you know helpful for you because um, it seems like, you know, when you're dealing with, uh, this kind of complexity and th these kinds of really delicate and, uh, tender emotion, you know, emotions that, you know, some people, I guess, can confront that, uh, in nonfiction and can do it beautifully, though I tend to think that most people need, um, time distance in order to have perspective on it and to be able to do it well. But with fiction, you might be able to address it more immediately, um, you know, from, from a time perspective. Uh, but you but you have that distance because you have a character who's not you. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, is, is, was that the case for you? Do you need that distance in order to be able to access this stuff? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's exactly how it felt. Like, I, that's what I mean when I say that I couldn't have written about it in any other way. Um, maybe, maybe, yeah, that's a better way to put it. That that was the only way I could write about it or, or even think about it or address it because, you know, it, it afforded me the distance of, you know, jumping into someone else's head when I didn't have any temporal distance at all. And I had geographic distance, which also helped. So I could look back at Greenpoint from New Hampshire and then from Europe because we live in Europe on and off too. And, um, where, where, I, in, and where in Europe? We spent a winter in Italy in Brendan, Brendan's my boyfriend. Um, we spent a winter in his grandmother's house in Tuscany and technically a villa in Tuscany. Um, but it was winter. So it wasn't like under the Tuscan sun. It wasn't, you know, euphoric. We were <laughs> writing and listening to a lot of very moody sort of Gila Lobos and Beethoven's last quartets and sort of <laughs> um, cooking a lot of food. It was like goth um, Tuscany, you know. <laughs> it was it was definitely dark Tuscany. Good. Then um, we spent one August a couple of years ago in Germany in a, in a castle at a residency. But that, too, I mean, that, too, was like dark, dark residency. I mean, it sounds... Was that, was that the one in Stuttgart? No, it was, it was um, at the Schloss School in Frederikshafen. Oh, okay. In near Bavaria, but it's, it's, um, it's actually the Bodensee, it's called. Oh, okay, because I was talking to somebody else. I was talking to uh, Essie Adugin on this show, and she had been in a castle in Germany as well. There's obviously some good residencies over in Germany. <laughs> There's I, this is just the tip of the iceberg for Europe and residencies. They're all like castles all over Europe where you, apparently you can just apply and go and live there. Um, so I, I may look further into this. That's the only one I've ever done. Um, but the, the way I structured the book, and, and because he's male, first of all, women are so much tougher than men, in my experience, in certain ways. Um, like when a, when a relationship ends, I think that men tend to, in my experience, and I know you're a man, and you may be the exception to this rule, um, and I'm always careful to generalize, but there is a certain wallowing, maybe, that men do when women just sort of briskly get on with it, and I'm waiting for you to contradict me. No, I mean, no, I, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm looking back on my own experience. Like, I think that there, in my experience, there's like sometimes uh, at the moment, like where the, the, the process, the communication process when things are ending, um, like in my personal relationship history, uh, women have been more emotional in those moments. But once it's over, I'm the one who's had more of a problem. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I, but I'm also like, I mean, and I'm not a hugely sentimental person or nostalgic person, but I, I think everybody's like this. Like, I don't care who you are. Like, if you've had uh, boyfriends or girlfriends, relationships past, like, I, I, I will always have a soft spot for everybody I ever dated. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, God. Doesn't everybody have that? But, the, you know, you don't talk about it very much, but I think that's the case. No, it's true. And that's the whole thing of the death of love. Where does it go? Right. Where does it go? <laughs> I think it stays with <laughs> us. I think it stays with us. And it's like, hopefully, um, you know, the best parts of it stay with us anyway. Do you know? Yeah. And that's what I was finding as I was moving forward. Um, and, you know, I fell in love with someone new and left New York and moved in with him and we started a whole new life together and now we bought a house and we live in Portland, Maine. But when I think about my husband, I still have this sense of, yes, um, he's totally a part of me and always will be and there's no, there's no sort of easy way to, to 
especially in the first few years after after a marriage ends, there's no easy way to negotiate that sort of it's like a it's like a dissonance. Yes, he's part of my life, but no, I don't live with him anymore. We're not married anymore. And um, and having Harry be a man um, gave me the sort of I don't know the the male perspective on it, which does tend to wallow more. I don't I don't know what the word is, um, but but his obsessiveness. Um, allowed me to do something that I, I wouldn't normally be doing. And maybe it's just that that's my character that I sort of move on and, you know, well, and I think I think the thing too. I mean, it's it, that that's a really interesting point. The way that like the different genders handle relationships and then breakups and stuff like that. And I think maybe like women tend to have um, a more advanced emotional vocabulary and you know intuitive understanding of uh, those dynamics. Like, period. You know, when they're in it, when they're out of it, or whatever. And then men, you know, I think sometimes even if they could, they sometimes choose not to access that or they deny it or whatever. And then afterwards, because so much of it has been left unarticulated, um, you know, once the thing's blown up and it's over with, they're sort of left with all of that. And so the wallowing process might have something to do with sifting through it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Women, whereas women have given it and given it its full expression, uh, if not externally, then certainly, you know, then internally more often than not. So, um, women try and try and try and try while the relationship is going on and they, they give it their all. And when it ends, they've already given it their all. And so it's easier to move on. Is that what you're saying? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the case. I mean, obviously it's, it's a generalization and it's, you know, there's, there's, it's it's more nuanced, I'm sure, you know, from relationship to relationship. But I think there's there's some truth to that. I think there's definitely some truth to that. And, um, you know, I think that what's interesting, too, is that, uh, you know, when you talk about past relationships and how they stay with you and where does it go, you know, it seems like there's some sort of um, – what's the word I'm looking for? It, it seems like people have this expectation of themselves or of, of themselves that when a relationship ends, whether you're a male or a female, that, you know, the healthy thing to do is to deal with it and then move on. But no one ever really talks about wh- what to do with it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> after the fact. And, um, I think, you know, it, it should be said that it's actually, uh, I think normal and quite healthy to keep it and to, treat it with some degree of reverence. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. It rarely gets expressed, though. And and that's the whole grieving thing. It's the death. It is a death. And the way I structured Harry's investigation into the death of his marriage, because he's a man again, and I feel like men are very action-oriented, again, a generalization. But he is, let's just compare me to Harry. Like, Harry goes around the neighborhood looking for clues, um, in a way, and tries to prove his innocence in a kind of I thought of it as a noir detective novel structure, that he's that he's interviewing everybody who might know about what happened. He even goes and sees his wife's therapist and confronts her, and that he his taking action is very much um, his way of learning and and gathering information and finding out what are people saying. He runs into an old friend in a bar and he goes out to his son's cult and talks to him. He talks to his daughter, um, and I feel like and his best friend. Um, and I feel like his his plot, if if he has a plot, I mean I'm not really that plot oriented when I write, but if there's a plot, it's it's internal and it's it's to me it's like in that convention of the falsely accused 
um, innocent man um, who goes, sets out to prove his own innocence and becomes a detective by default. It's like Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and yeah, <laughs> I wish. <Right>. Um, <laughs> um, and that and that when the novel ends, it's because the investigation is over. And he's gathered all the answers, and it's it's resolved itself kind of, I mean, kind of a detective novel way, the way I felt writing it. Did you read a lot of detective novels to to prep for the book? Were you thinking? I mean, did you have you talked about earlier about having um, Kingsley Amos, uh, Lucky Jim, you know, as sort of like an inspiration or a springboard for an earlier work? Did you have like a detective novel that you were using uh, for the Astral? I went through about. I mean, I love detective novels, and I love series with the same detective and following. I mean, I read all of Agatha Christie pretty much. I don't know. I may have missed a few, but I really went on an Agatha Christie bender when I was about 19 or 20, and that was my gateway drug to to Dick Francis and Robert B. Parker and then um, V.I. Warshawski. Wait, uh, I can't remember the woman who wrote those. And Kinsey Milhone. and then, and then just sort of random, any time I came across it, I've read a lot of detective novels and um, Raymond Chandler. And it's a genre that I feel is so, it's so, um, I feel like probably Dostoevsky is the father of the detective novel in a way. It's so um, moral and it's yet so exciting at the same time. It's not didactic. You really feel what it's like to be an outsider and, and where the line is drawn in crime in terms of um, the criminal and the innocent citizen, and the detective walks that line. So that's always the convention. Um, the detective is kind of a loner, used to work on the police force, couldn't hack it, um, was too iconoclastic, had to be let go, and opened a detective agency, and um, is now sort of, you know, walking on a very fine line to stay on the right side of the law, but identifies with the criminal deeply. And, I mean, in Harry's case, he's both the criminal and the detective. So, um, you know, he, he embodies the duality. But the book that I thought about when I was writing this was The Horse's Mouth by um, Joyce Carey about the painter Gully Jensen, who's just been let out of prison when the book opens. And he's this old scamp in London, and he scrambled around London um, just trying to do his work. All he cares about is his painting. He'll lie, he'll cheat, he'll steal, he'll say anything to get paints and materials. And... How he relates to Harry is a little bit mysterious to me because they're very different. Um, but that was the book that I read and reread um, as I was thinking about the astral. Hmm. Wow. Well, and so before I let you go, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, your background. Where are you from? Like, you know, and how did you come to writing? You know, I, I always like to ask people on this show how how that happened. But like, let's just start with um, where you're from. Like, where, where were you born, etc. Born, I was born in 1962 in Berkeley, California, and my parents were um, very, very radical politically. My father was a Marxist pro bono lawyer who um, who did who worked for the Black Panthers and draft dodgers and all sorts of rabble rousers. So our house was always full of these politicos, really interesting people. And my mother um, made spaghetti in good 60s wife style, and um, and so from. Berkeley, we left when I was eight and moved to Arizona. My parents had split up. And then I spent the rest of my childhood in Arizona. So it's this weird, which is the most conservative, back then especially, but even now, of course. Um, Barry Goldwater, you know? Barry Goldwater. Um, Yeah, exactly. Um, And 
then from there I went to, well, to school, to, to higher education. So, but my childhood was spent out west. In okay. And where, where in Arizona? Like what city? And then Phoenix, and then up to a ghost town in um, near Sedona called Jerome, which is a big tourist attraction. It was just starting to be when we lived there. Yeah, I've been to Sedona. I mean, that's like that's really beautiful, but it's uh, you know it's obviously like uh, you're out, it's kind of out in the sticks. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like it's 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 I, for some reason I don't want to use the word rural when it comes to the desert. It doesn't feel like the appropriate adjective, but there's not a ton of people out there. Let's just put it that way. Correct? Yeah, <laughs> and especially in the '70s. I mean, nobody. It's it's really changed a lot. It's much it's much more cosmopolitan and shishi and sort of part of the world now. Back then it was a backwater. It really was. It was it was a real desert. So what um, so what kind of kid were you? And like what what was it like to grow up there? I mean, were you were you constantly were you, were you bookish from the start or did you go to go into books later in your childhood? I think I I came out of the womb ready to start writing as soon as I was old enough. Some writers come to it later and some are just born that way and I'm I'm one of the ones that was just born that way. I wrote a story I remember at six. I think I still have it, and and never looked back. I just, you know, I learned enough of the English language to put words on a paper, and um, had had been voraciously listening to any story my mother would read me until I could start reading for myself. And so the the whole idea of storytelling and and embodying different characters just that that was innate. Well, and then and then uh, you said you, you know as you got into high school and stuff like in adolescence, um, were you uh, bookish, nerdy, social, like what, what kind of, you know, what, what were you like in those years? I was all, I always have been this weird combination of very social and very sort of, um, happy to be in a group. Um, not necessarily of writers, but you know, happy to be around other people and having fun and drinking and laughing and talking. And then very, very, very introverted and bookish and nerdy and quiet. So it's, it's sort of, it's a split personality in a way. Yeah, I, sor- I sort of have that too. And it's like, I love to be around people uh, and I'll have so much fun with it. But when it's over, I'll be exhausted. And then yeah, I'll, I'll need to like go work, you know, and, I, and I'm so relieved to like close the door to my office and just have some time, you know. I, I wonder how many of us are like that. Really? I, I think a lot. I think a lot of people are like that period, but I think writers, you know, especially, I mean, some writers I think are always like that. They're always exhausted. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, well, you know, maybe it's writers with kids who are always exhausted. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely, I mean, you know, sleep is, sleep is a rare commodity, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I just feel like there's opposing energies at work in me because I definitely have the social thing, but I also have the introversion, um, and they they need to be balanced. Like I sort of need both. You know what I'm saying? Like I I think if I have too much time alone, it's not good for me. And I think if I have too much social time, it's not good for me. So it's like something I need to kind of monitor. Yeah, that's exactly how I am. Same. So um, so and then what about um you know uh, high school into college? You know where did you go to undergrad? Um. I, well, I went to Reed College. Oh, that's right. That's right. You went to Reed. Yeah. Majored in English and did a creative thesis, which I, I I practically had to beg to be allowed to write short stories for my thesis instead of a treatise on George Eliot because it's it's not that kind of school. It's very academic and very traditional, and which is great. It's it's what I wanted, but but by senior year I was ready to, to start writing. Um, so I wrote a creative thesis, which was four short stories, and used two of them to get into Iowa. Got into Iowa but took a year off and worked as a cocktail waitress and a, and a short order cook 
and I um, worked in a bookstore, so I had some jobs, lived in Portland, um, began my floundering, and then went to Iowa and um, continued it, really. <laughs> and, then, and then on to New York. Perpetuated the floundering. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And you're, and are you, do you feel like you get this uh, writing bug from one of your parents? Like, I mean, you said your father's a lawyer. Like, attorneys often have, like, a writing gene, I think, that's either... Uh, expressed in their work somehow or is repressed by their work and doesn't get a chance to kind of flower. But, I mean, is that where you get it from, you think, or is it somewhere else? I don't know my father very well, but he is very uh, – he's the kind of, like, dad who wasn't really into being a dad and, you know, felt free to sort of leave um, and did. So I haven't really seen him in a number of years. But he's very verbal. My dog is whimpering with his snout under the door. Oh. Um <laughs> I hope I hope it's not picking it up. No, no, I cannot. I cannot hear it. <laughs> he has a perfect life if you can hear him. Um, uh, my mother is a is a reader. My grandmother was a reader and very very literary. And I have I have the immense good luck to come from a family that values books and writing novels especially. It's almost like the culture of my family is um, dovetails per- perfectly with with who I am and what my predilections were. So I didn't have to. I didn't have to fight my family in order to be a writer. It was it was sort of expected that I would be a writer. What was expected was that I would write books that my mother liked to read. Um, and luckily, that is how it's worked out. But um, she does like your work. She loves it, um, and she has always loved it ever since I was little. She was my reader, my first reader. And again, I feel really lucky to have had this support and and enthusiasm. And also, I could trust her because she is so smart and literary and. Our tastes are so similar, but I, I don't know where that came from. I think that was just luck. I think I would have been a writer anyway, um, because again, if, if it's innate, there's nothing you can do about it. You're cursed or blessed or whatever it is. Um, but I, it, I felt, I felt solidly, solidly um, supported in that way by my family and grandmother too, and sisters also. They're very literary and very, um, very good writers. But I'm the only writer i'm the only novelist that my family has produced yeah i'm the only one too like i, I don't even my n- neither of my folks are in you know into the arts though i have some like you know distant rel or not distant relatives my great-grandfather was a piano he was a pianist which is a hard word to say you know but uh that's what he did <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know and then there's some visual artists you know some visual art talent on my mom's side but no you know no writers uh that I can, you know, that I know about. So I've always felt kind of like an oddball in that way. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a whole other kind of experience, I think, as yeah. a writer. Well, I mean, I talk to some oh. writers and they, like, they come from families of writers and there's like a lineage and it would, I feel like maybe I would, I, I would make more sense to myself if that were the case. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. like, I've always been <laughs> such, I've, I've always had such odd, um, you know, I've been always such an oddball in my own family and in, in not only in that way either, you know, just in the way I see the world and so on and so forth. And you can sort of wonder where you come from, but it's just the way it turned out for me, you know? I think that's good for a writer to have that, to have that friction or, or sort of distance from your family. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it can be, you know what I'm saying? You kind of have to work with what you have and I think that there's positives to it and maybe negatives to it, but um, you know, to flip it, I've talked to some people who say, you know, you know, mom or dad was a writer or both, you know, were artists of some sort. And that was sort of the family business. And it just seemed natural and it seemed like totally possible. Uh, and okay. from, you know, do you know what I'm saying? And like, for me, it was like, how in the hell do you climb this mountain? And is this even, 
you know, <laughs> that's just seemed like it's still to a large extent seems like a big mystery, you know, like how it's all done. But, um, yeah. you know, I love, I love to do it and I'm, you know, I'm sure you do too. So uh, that's half the battle really. Did you feel it was an aid in you when you were little? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I don't think I was like super focused or super um, serious about it as a career. Like I was a kid for a long time. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I was a kid into my 20s. Um, and there's parts of me that probably still are, you know, so I feel like I'm a late bloomer. And I think that sometimes people, you know, are just more serious about it and, and are working in a much more focused way at a much younger age. And that to me is always how I've defined uh, or as I've gotten older, that's how I've come to define prodigies. You know, it's not it's not necessarily that somebody is just a genius. I think that's really, I don't know. I, it's hard to it's hard for me to articulate. I don't think I think that's fairly rare for somebody to just literally be born brilliant. I think that if there's brilliance, it's the brilliance of knowing it really young and starting to really practice it really young. And the, no, I am so not one of those people. Yeah, no, it took me a while to get to the point where I was, I finally like, it was, for me, it was like a reckoning. I finally just had to be like, oh shit, you got to work at this. <laughs> it's, All not, right. it's not going to be easy. Ugh, you know, like it was that kind of thing. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I have so enjoyed this. This has been super fun talking with you. And, uh, are you working I'm, on, are you working on another book? I'm writing, um, I'm writing a book about my life actually, about it's, uh, with food as its focus. It's called Blue Plate Special, and I'm almost finished with it, and then I'll get back to novels. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah, you said you loved food, and uh, we we didn't get a chance to really discuss it at length, but, um, you know, you are kind of known for being a good food writer, meaning your, like, descriptive passages about food make people hungry. So uh, I think that's born out of passion, right? If you love something, you can tend to write about it well. Like people who write about sex tend to really love sex. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, well, that's a, that's a huge compliment. Thank you for saying that. I I I love I love food in life, and yeah, that probably translates. Um, um, hopefully, so it's nice to hear. Maybe I should write a book called Dark Chocolate. That would be. Uh... Yeah, I'll think about it. But uh, Kate, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. And best of luck, um, you know, with the new book and then with the future novels. Thanks so much. It was really fun talking to you. All right, everybody. There it is. There you have it. That's Kate Christensen for the hour. Go get the astral. It is out there right now in paperback. And uh, while you're at it, pick up some of her other books as well. You can follow her on the Twitter, at Aquavita, and you can find her on Facebook, too. This program has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. Uh, I have a Twitter feed. Come follow me, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to today's sponsor, the UCLA Extension Writers Program. If you're working on a book, whether it's a novel or a collection of short stories, or if you're a screenwriter of some sort and you want some uh, instruction, some structure, some help, some camaraderie, go sign up for a class. You can attend right here in Los Angeles in person or remotely via the internet. Either way works just fine, and there's no time like right now to get started. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Or you can visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers. Uh, and you can check them out on Facebook and Twitter as well. 
And uh, hey, if you like this program, if you like other people, if you find it uh, you know beneficial, if you listen to it regularly and you want to help the cause, here's a couple of things you can do. Number one, uh, please go over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It's a simple thing to do. It takes two minutes. Uh, just a nice little rating, a nice review. Uh, it does help the cause, and I would certainly appreciate that. Uh, and number two, uh, if you are of the means and you would like to lend a little financial support, uh, to the program, please consider joining the TNB Book Club. That's the Nervous Breakdown Book Club for only nine ninety nine a month. That's less than the cost of, uh, of a movie ticket, less than the cost of a book. Uh, you will get a new title, hand-selected by myself uh, and Jonathan Evison, delivered to your door every 30 days. That's a new book every 30 days, delivered to you for only nine ninety nine a month. Plus, every uh, every author featured in the book club I interview them on this program. So you read the book, you listen to the show, you listen to the show, you read the book, whatever you like. Uh, it's a great deal. To sign up, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and uh, click on Book Club in the menu bar. Okay? Uh, please remember that Voltaire once referred to Shakespeare as, quote, an amiable barbarian and that William Faulkner voted for Adelaide Stevenson. Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. And, uh, you know, please do not shoot yourself. Uh, in the arm. Please refrain from injuring yourself while wandering the countryside searching for kindness.